0: Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, all you happy warriors, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Appin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And I call you happy warriors because I see here in my studio, in my mind's eye, I look ahead and I see every one of you, regardless of your age or your condition, as either a beautiful and nubile woman or a handsome and virile man. No gender spectrum, no confusion. Just happy warrior men and happy warrior women. Hmm. I do hope that you're going to enjoy this show today. Uh, I I, I know I'm already enjoying it, and uh, if you are enjoying the podcast in general, and remember, we do not put it behind a paywall. You are able to listen to this show every single week. The one thing I want to ask you to do is to subscribe, because as I'm sure you already know, in the wonderful world of the internet, the number of subscriptions is really important to the success of the project. So, If you are enjoying it and are happy to help me out here, all you got to do is go ahead and subscribe. It doesn't matter whatever platform you listen on, YouTube, iTunes, Amazon Music. Uh, We've got a huge listenership in India. Thank God. I'm delighted about that. They listen on a platform called Ghana and uh, Spotify, of course. Anyway, all around the world. Uh, It helps us all to stay in touch as happy warriors, and more importantly, it even helps the podcast reach a larger audience, making the world a better place. And so the show continues just for real men and for real women, right? That's what it is. It's just happy warrior men and happy warrior women. This is because our show focuses more on your soul than on your bodies. And I know that every listener has a young and vibrant soul. What is more, we're all happy warriors because to live productively, you have to fight every day fight against the force of entropy, if nothing else. You fight to maintain your possessions. You fight to build and maintain your family and your finances. You fight to maintain your body, your fitness, and your business and your profession or your career or your job. God created a world in which chaos and disorder rules. Now, this was written down in the second verse of Genesis, the second verse of God's message to mankind, where it says explicitly that he created a world of tohu bohu, which, by the way, I found in a dictionary, that word tohu bohu, the Hebrew word meaning chaos and confusion. Uh, If you are not of a religious bent, if faith is not a part of your life, well, the second law of thermodynamics will do just as well. The important thing is you realize that we all live in a world where the tendency is towards chaos and destruction, not towards order and achievement. The question is not, why do things go wrong? Why is there so much crime in New York? Why is there so much crime in Johannesburg? Why is there so much crime in Moscow? But um, that's not the real question. The real question is, why is it that in the United States of America, prior to 1962, you could walk, a woman could walk anywhere, anywhere in New York City, anywhere in Los Angeles, anywhere in Chicago, day or night, in complete safety? That's the real question. In other words, disorder, chaos, disruption, and destruction, (laughs) that's how the world works. That's completely normal. The real question is, how come it wasn't like that all the time? The real question is not, Oh my God, why did an airplane crash? Why did it fall out of the sky? Right, that's not the question. It fell out of the sky. It's very simple. The word is gravity. The real question is, how did it stay up there in the first place? What incredible achievement of human cooperation, what incredible acts of unbelievable human God-given creativity made it possible to build airframes that were strong and light and engines that could convert the energy embedded in oil into thrust and wings that were so cunningly designed that would convert thrust into lift and control services and air traffic control systems with control towers in uh, all around the country. So as planes could fly safely, How did that all come about? The real question is when we manage to overcome entropy. And there's much more to learn there than there is from the questions of, hey, what happened? Why did the airplane come down? Or what happened? Look at all the crime in in, uh, New York. Maybe we've got to adjust the legal system. Maybe we're not taking into account people's skin color. Maybe we're not taking into account people's economic condition. Maybe we're not taking people's gender into account. Instead of clarity on what converts chaos to order. And so those are the things that we speak about because we acknowledge that the default condition is tohu bohu, or as, the, uh, as thermodynamics would, play, would call it, entropy. Basically, the tendency is towards disorder, chaos, and confusion, destruction, and the fight is to keep it or to make it the other way. Uh, life is a fight, and that is a very good thing. I mean, think what happens to the bodies of astronauts when they're in space for lengthy periods of time their muscles and their bones atrophy. The, um, the, the space agencies work very hard on trying to find ways for astronauts to keep exercising because when you're not in a daily fight, as at its most basic level, we are every day because of gravity, you start deteriorating. And so to be in the fight, again, this is all by way of explaining... Um, my love for happy warriors, yes, it's a good thing to be a warrior uh, because to stop fighting is to stop seeking and to stop striving. And that means to die. So we're not just warriors, but we're happy warriors because the truth is, you know, to throw yourself into the fight for eight or 10 hours a day, six days a week. Well, that's one thing. But to do it all with a debonair smile on your face and a jaunty pace to your stride, to do all that while generating an irrepressible surge of happiness welling up inside our soul, well, that means that we are spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming. We are devoted to our faith, to our families, to our finances, to our friends, to our fitness, knowing knowing that it is possible to triumph over the forces of entropy and over those who are trying to undermine civilization, who both intentionally and sometimes unknowingly are actually promoting a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism and all the many destructive and evil social pathologies that it generates. When I talk about how the world really works, it is in the hope that you will help us defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans of history who possess neither Judeo-Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would almost be welcome. Those hideous hermaphrodites and fanatical feminists running our government, our media, our education, our bureaucracies, all of whom possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women. But, oh, what damage they managed to inflict. But uh, never fear. Here, together on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, we commit ourselves to help transform our timidity to triumph. We struggle to replace diffidence with determination and to displace the divided councils of doubt with a steady eyes and firm hearts of those who just like us know where they are going and know just how they are going to get there. Now, somebody who did know where he was going and also knew how to get there was the late Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson Passed away this past week um, on uh, June the eighth, twenty twenty three, and a poignant uh, moment for me. He was a very good friend to me, and uh, I regarded him uh, with warmth and affection and admiration. Um, Pat Robertson uh, was the son of a senator from Virginia, and. as a young man, he and his new bride set out to spread the gospel and create a ministry, and uh, he sought 700 people who would help fund a media ministry. And uh, that became the foundation of what then became one of the most famous TV programs in religious programming called the 700 Club. It was the Club of the 700? And um I myself had appeared on that show with Pat um a number of times, um, discussing various books, discussing ideas, discussing uh, political issues. And uh, um he also started Regent University. Um, my family and I were his guests for the dedication of the Regent University Law School. Gosh, um, that was that was a few decades ago. Probably, I don't know more than more than probably thirty years ago. I don't remember exactly when it was. Um, he uh, decided because of the condition of the country, and he was a, a great patriot, really dedicated to the United States of America. He uh, he ran for the Republican nomination in nineteen eighty eight. He didn't make it. You'll remember Ronald Reagan um, ran and won in 80 and in 84. And in 1988, um, the the candidates included um, Pat Robertson. Uh, He didn't make it, but um, he had such a vast army of support around the country that he decided to put it to good use and uh, he created the Christian Coalition. Um, He hired a young man who had been very effective on conservative uh, recruiting on college campuses by the name of Ralph Reed, um, who subsequently also became a friend of mine and uh, somebody of of great skill and talent, and uh, Ralph uh, built up Pat Robertson's Christian Coalition into a very large and and powerful organization. Uh, I spoke for their national conventions a number of times. As a matter of fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, my very first speech to a Christian audience, right, usually i would spoken only to Jewish audiences, my very first speech to a Christian audience was to uh, 6,000 members of the Christian coalition at their first national convention at the Washington Hilton in Washington DC and when was that i'm going to say around about uh, early 90s um is is as i'm recalling maybe maybe 89 even maybe uh, again i i could look up these things quite easily but i just want to spend a few moments Uh, eulogizing pat robertson and uh, remembering him for the remarkable man that he really was Uh, there was a uh, republican sweep in the house of representatives in 94 under newt gingrich and uh, and pat robertson's christian coalition had a great deal to do with that Uh, at any rate pat was a great american he was a great friend to me And uh, he was a a very significant leader. He was always in the crosshairs of the New York Times and various other far-left liberal media that uh, resented his religiosity. It it resented his seeing America as the fulfillment of God's plans. Uh, But that's what, um, what he did. And that's how it was. So, uh, so there it was. In 1994, it was a historic sweep, and, and it was largely due to the organization that Pat Robertson had created with the help of Ralph Reed. And that was 29 years ago. So it's ancient history already, very ancient history. But let's go even further back in ancient history. Let's go back 79 years ago. 79 years ago, uh, June the 6th, 1944, the biggest seaborne military invasion in all of human history. Allied forces, American, Canadian, English landing on the shores of Normandy in northwest France uh, in order to bring an end to the Third Reich which they did. That was the Reich that was meant to last a 1,000 years. Didn't quite make 12 years, but uh, so it goes. And think about it. I'm just thinking about the logistics of this, what this means in terms of planning, in terms of cooperation. Because the whole secret here, isn't it? It's communication and collaboration and connection and cooperation. How do you do that? How do you pull together an invasion force of that size and can you believe i mean look it means you've got to have think how many ships you've got to get lined up there there are so many factors isn't it remarkable that uh, the nazis did not know exactly where or when they you would have thought you couldn't pull this off but they did and think about this as well I mean, I know it, it mind-boggles me. Think about how many men landed on the beaches of Normandy that day, just on June the 6th, 150,000 men. Think about what 150,000 men with their equipment means. Um, if, if you put them in a line, right, one man tied up against the next man, it would be over three miles long. Three miles if they march by you non-stop, eight hours a day, it would take more than five days to march by you. By the end of June, right, just three weeks after June the sixth, one million men had landed, along with hundreds of thousands of vehicles, about half a million tons of supplies, food, fuel, etc. Um was it inevitably going to be a success? No. And as everybody knows, General Eisenhower penned two separate letters, one in the case of victory and one in the case of defeat. And they were both uh, very remarkable pieces of short writing. Um, Hitler was sleeping. He was taking a nap while the invasion was going on. Nobody wanted to wake, and tell, wake him up and tell him he was in the eagle's lair and um he wasn't told until the early afternoon that the invasion had begun. Uh, for the first few hours, the Germans thought that it was a feint, that it was uh, the Allies trying to fool the Germans into thinking that the invasion would take place there. They were very, very committed to the idea that it was going to be further north, north of the estuary of the River Seine uh, in France. And, uh, and they, they relinquished that belief only very slowly and very reluctantly. Meanwhile, uh, the general is in charge of the 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 only forces capable of really repelling the invasion at that stage of the war. Nineteen forty-four is late, and uh, Germany has been badly pummeled by this point already. So their uh, superb and elite Panzer corps were the only groups. The t- the Panzer tank corps were the only groups able to theoretically stop uh, the invasion, and um, uh, Hitler insisted on retaining final uh, authority as to when and where they can be deployed. He also split the authority over the Panzer forces in France between von Rundstedt, General von Rundstedt, and General Rommel. Um, In my view, I think General Rommel was uh, the finer general, and um, he was simply not given the authority to do what he knew had to be done. Rommel insisted that the invasion had to be stopped on the beach, whereas the uh, the general German belief was that uh, let them land, we'll counterattack once they've landed, and uh, it'll be further inland, maybe a mile or two inland, that's when we'll counterattack. Uh, Rommel was obviously right. I mean, the only chance they had of stopping the invasion was by uh, meeting them on the beach. As it was, even though they were not prepared, they still managed to kill or injure about ten thousand Allied troops on that first day. So, out of one hundred and fifty thousand landed, uh, ten thousand were right away taken out. So, um, this was was no picnic at all. Nonetheless. I've often asked myself, could was there anything the Germans could have done? And uh, I think probably not, because if you think about it, in the final analysis, the um, it, it usually comes down to economics. It really does. That warfare, I mean, warfare usually comes down to economics. And uh, at this point, you know, at the time of the invasion, uh, the German air force, the Luftwaffe, was pretty, much decimated. It, it, it didn't have a lot going on at that point. Um, the skies over Normandy were under American and British control. Um, think about the number of aircraft. In 1944 alone, just in that one year, the year of the invasion, America built 96,000 airplanes. Now, you know, I'm, I'm throwing out these numbers, but. But think about it, I mean, 96, look at it this way. Today, it takes Boeing how long to build a 737 uh, twin-engine jet. Okay, it takes them about 10 days. Boeing can turn out a 737 every 10 days. What does 96,000 airplanes a year mean? It means turning out 11 planes per hour. <laughs> think about that for, on average during 1944 never mind england england also made a bunch of about 20,000 but america made 96,000 aircraft that means turning out 11 aircraft an hour day and night every single hour of 1944 11 fully function functioning ready to fly airplanes every single hour for a total of 96,000 that same year, 20, by that same year, Japan uh, built 28,000. Um, and again, um, you know, it, things are, are not going well for Japan at this point. But still, 96,000 airplanes built in America, 28,000 in Japan, Germany, 39,000, call it 40,000. So between the two of them, between Germany and Japan, they've still... Only a bit more than half the the airplane output of the United States. Um, there was no there was no standing against that, and so um, sooner or later it 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 was over. And it was extremely unlikely, as I see it, that the Germans could have done anything at all. To they they could have put up a better fight. They could have they could have avoided a number of mistakes, and there were a lot of mistakes but um, was it going to change the outcome? I don't really think so. Uh, The invasion went very well indeed, not as well as best case scenario, but a whole lot better than uh, than worst case scenario. So there wasn't a lot that could have been done. So uh, you just got to remember that for the most part, in the end, war nearly always comes down to economics. Uh, After all, no other country in the world could have afforded to build the atomic bomb in 1945. Yes, uh, you are right when you say, and I I know many of you are aware that Germany had progressed fairly far along in the science, in the the understanding of it. But the sheer money, the sheer organizational power, the ability to apply so much resource to the construction of a bomb— Germany couldn't do it at that point, and so uh, the, the writing was on the wall, which raises a very difficult question to answer, by the way. It's not a question I have a quick and easy answer to, and that is, when you looked at the economic power of the United States of America and that of Japan, the attack on Pearl Harbor seems to have been a mad mistake. I mean, And the only thing I, I, the only thing in terms of a simple, quick um, solution to the enigma of how could the Japanese, who, I mean, these, you know, we're not talking about people who slow on the uptake. Uh, Japan was okay, you know, and they still are. So how could they have made that mistake? And and i think the the only easy answer i have to that is they assumed that the devastating attack on pearl harbor and i think they thought it was going to be more devastating than it turned out to be it was bad enough but there were some very important warships that were not in harbor that day um, on uh, in december 1941 and uh, so i think they assumed that that uh, america would just subside and lick their wounds and and not do anything about it because meanwhile japan was doing very well in southeast asia they they were securing their supplies of rubber and fuel and um and with that blow i think they must have miscalculated america was seen as peace loving don't forget japan watched how reluctantly american america finally got involved in um in uh supporting and helping the British, it was not easy. And, uh, you know, Roosevelt had to work with Churchill and Lend-Lease came into being, but they saw that America was not looking for a fight. They saw that uh, there was a very strong movement led largely by Charles Lindbergh, uh, the uh, the flying ace who flew the Spirit of St. Louis across the Atlantic years earlier. Um, they saw that there was a very strong Isolationist movement of not getting into a fight, and uh, that's the only thing I can think of to explain. Because the immense economic disparity between the uh, potential of America and the potential of Japan would make the eventual outcome, unfortunately for Japan, an inevitable um, and and very very clear defeat. And so once we we once we think in terms of warfare being largely determined by economic ability, uh, we have to start looking at China realistically. Now, I know, and I've, I've heard repeatedly, that many people uh, speak about uh, China, the Chinese economy, oh, it's on the way down, sooner or later, it's going to pop Because after all, it's impossible to control an economy by communist tyranny. And the Chinese Communist Party has a rude awakening down the road. Their economy is going to collapse. They've got this happening and they've got that happening. I must tell you that looking at it objectively, not with rose-colored glasses, but looking at it objectively... I've got to tell you, I don't see it. I really don't see it. To me, it seems perfectly clear that uh, the Chinese economy is doing very, very well indeed. Um, very close to outpacing the American economy, if it hasn't done that already. Uh, in terms of military production, production of ships and aircraft, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of hypersonic missile capacity. Uh, it's not even close, my friends. Wish I wish I wasn't saying this, but it's true. And um, another more news this uh, this week of of my preparing this podcast is that China just flew their very first commercial home built aircraft, the Comac C nineteen C nine one nine, very much like a, a Boeing seven three seven or the Airbus three twenty. Does that mean they used industrial espionage to purloin the plans for the uh, for the airplane? I I don't doubt for a moment that there was considerable industrial espionage, but I don't know that um, that that really was a key factor. And the reason I say it is because um, you know there are not a lot of different ways of designing a twin-engined passenger long-haul aircraft. They just aren't. If you locked, um, you know, four engineers in four different rooms and asked them to come up with a sketch of, um, you know, a a two-engine jet passenger plane, single aisle with the ability to carry a payload of uh, X tons for so many miles, um, it's not, you know, all their designs are going to pretty much look the same. Um, because they're all dealing with gravity and they're all dealing with the uh, energy capacity of jet fuel and they're all dealing with the material strengths of composites and aluminum uh, of which airplanes are made, or aluminum alloys, I should say, and uh, uh, they're dealing with wind resistance. They're all dealing with exactly the same things. This is not like um, a cake you know, and there's probably more ways of making a cake than there are of building a, a two-engine jet aircraft. So, yeah, uh, suspend the engines beneath the wings. Yep, that's pretty much. You know, we, we tried the other ways. Uh, the um, uh, the early British jet passenger plane, the Comet, engines in the wing. The British-French supersonic airplane, the Concorde, they tried the engines in the wing. Never gone back to that. It's finished. It's gone because that just isn't a good place for it for a variety of reasons, having to do with uh, safety, having to do with maintenance, ease of maintenance. This way, it's just really quick and easy to swap off uh, an engine, off a 737, or for that matter, off the Airbus. And, uh, and so I'm not sure that the fact that the COMAC 919 looks just like an Airbus or just like a 737 um, makes uh, very much difference. I think that that's kind of the way the design would evolve anyways, with or without espionage. Um, I do believe, and this is purely conjecture on my part, <laughs> I have zero evidence for this, but um, Airbus airplanes have an A in front of their name, you know, so the A320, Boeing's Boeing, the other big uh, world supplier of planes, puts a B in front of their airplanes, like the B-737. Uh, I don't think it's an accident that China named their first entry into commercial aircraft building the C-919. I think they are suggesting that it's the natural sequence, ABC, Airbus, Boeing, and now COMAC building. And now, you know, you, you move. You move onwards and uh, – now, uh, it is true that the C919 has many um, components sourced outside China. The engines are LEAP engines, which are a joint – LEAP engines is a company. It's a joint venture company um, between, I think, France and Britain. Uh, I think Rolls-Royce is involved in it and also, I think, GE – Uh, General Electric is involved in it as well. So, it's uh, uh, the the engine manufacturer that makes these LEAP very efficient engines, and they're on uh, a number of other planes, including uh, some of the Airbus planes. Uh, So, yes, China uh, uses LEAP engines. I believe that this was largely in order to speed up uh, regulatory approval and to get the plane flying. I, I just don't think that china is incapable of building their own jet engines i'm sure they're working on it right now and i, I don't doubt that it won't be long before they stop buying plane engines from leap and uh, start fitting their own engines to their airplanes they're moving right ahead they're steaming forward at uh, full throttle and uh, and doing very very well indeed so uh Oh my! All, all all these all these things going on and uh, happening, and uh, it, it's it's been it's been a busy little while. But um, maybe, my dear friends, for now we'll we'll leave it at that. Let me remind you that um, the uh, resource, if you really want to get a better handle on the uh, on the underlying principles that shape the deterioration of a society with the declining morality of its government, then you really want to take a look at the book of Ruth and uh, my teaching on it, which is um, the the book of Ruth, and it's a course of connection. And you'll see this if you go to um, the uh, the, website website, we com, right www.wehappywarriors.com you will be able to uh, take a look at the Book of Ruth, where I teach um, things you never saw in the Book of Ruth, how it follows on from the Book of Judges, how collapse of government ties to economic collapse, and how ultimately that has to be repaired. So uh, enjoy that. Uh, I think it'll blow your mind. I really do. It's uh, it's quite extraordinary. Um, particularly those of you who sort of see the Bible as uh, stories, you know, fine. But if you really want to have some fun, see it as a blueprint to reality. And the book of Ruth could hardly be more timely in terms of things that are going on in the world right now. So if you want to get a handle on the underlying principles, how economics does tie into governance and how it does tie into state security, uh, all of that to be found in the book of Ruth. And what happens when you decide to put diversity ahead of merit? What happens to the economy? What happens to the military? What happens to the future security of a nation? Well, you can either wait miserably to find out or You can simply listen to the teaching I prepared for you on the book of Ruth. At least take a look at it, if you would, on uh, wehappywarriors.com. That's right. That's the name of the website, wehappywarriors.com. Do that and uh, enjoy it and grow from it. So uh, that'll bring us to the end, unfortunately, of today's show. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thanks for being part of the show. Thank you for subscribing. Thanks for telling other people about the show. All these things you're doing for me, I do appreciate it. And uh, I pray that you have a week, that you make for yourself a week of growing onwards and upwards in your families and in your finances, in your faith, in your friendship, and in your fitness. God bless.